Hi, this is Stephen Laddick. And I'm Kent McPhail. Welcome to What the M, the podcast about the mortgage default servicing industry. What the M is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes dropping every other Friday. So, Steve, how are you doing today? Could not be any better. Never had a bad day. How about you, Kent? Doing great, doing great. Things are all right up there in the Quaker state of Pennsylvania, I trust. Oh, it's a beautiful day up there, but I'm sitting in our Puerto Rico office today as we te- as we speak, so it's much nicer down here. Yeah, between us girls, I'm pretty sure I would choose Puerto Rico over Pennsylvania 100 out of 100 times, but, you know, I'm a water guy, so... So today, uh, we're going to sort of have a round-robin conversation, and Brooke Sanchez, a partner with my law firm, is going to be with us today. Brooke attended the University of South Alabama. She then attended Cumberland School of Law, spent at least 11 years doing debtor-side bankruptcy before she came over the creditor side, has been with our firm a number of years, and is an equity and name partner. We'll just uh, jump in. I am so excited to be here. You guys have been doing this show for a little bit now, and I'm just now getting invited, so my feelings are a little bit hurt, but here I am finally, and excited to talk to you guys about my favorite subject matter. Honestly, I can geek out on bankruptcy stuff all day. Well, welcome, Brooks. Great to have you. So where do you guys want to start? Brooke, you pick the topic and, and start us off. All right. So um, I had to do some case law research for a case I was working on, and I kind of noticed a trend. Um, I've been digging in on the rules, specifically the notices that mortgage servicers have to provide while a debtor is in bankruptcy. That's rule 3002.1. That's the rules that say they have to file the notice of the payment change. All the notices that are required during the bankruptcy, the response to the notice of final cure. And it just seems like there's a trend that debtor attorneys are getting more aggressive and trustees about enforcing compliance with those rules. Those rules have been, you know, they were new for a minute, but now they're 10 years old. So I think the expectation that there be some strict compliance with those rules is out there. And there's some cases even that suggest that failure to comply with those rules could result in punitive damages. I think the rule specifically, Rule 3002.1, provides that failure to comply can result in sanctions, including other appropriate relief, including reasonable expenses and attorney fees. And two out of three cases that I read recently said that other appropriate relief is punitive damages. So that's, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty big move there by the courts. I mean, do you feel like that? This is coming up at this point. I mean, it seems to me like a lot of things on the backside of the moratorium and you've had a lot of people in a lot of loss mitigation programs and what have you. And so it appears that not only with significant, significant regulatory oversight, but that where we've been for the last three years, not to mention bankruptcies being down, therefore debtor attorneys as well as trustees have not had as much to do might be a result of why this is happening now. What do y'all think, Steve? Yeah, this is a very good topic. And I was going to ask Brooke uh, some questions about the notice of final cure and what's been happening there. I mean, first, if the servicer doesn't 
answer that. Suppose the person was delinquent, the debtor was delinquent, but the servicer doesn't respond to the notice of final cure, then what? Debtor is deemed current, correct? Right, right. I think that creates a lot of problems. And, and another reason why that's difficult is because so many districts and judges treat that differently. What happens at the end of the case, whether a hearing is even set, whether an order comes out afterwards. So I think the result can leave the servicer with some liability where they're having to credit the account. And depending on the district, there could be some noncompliance with the rule that the judge could find them liable for and ding them with punitive damages. Beyond that, what happens in a state court foreclosure where the servicer's thinking this person is delinquent and they start a foreclosure proceeding based upon that delinquency, unaware of the fact that they never even responded to the notice of final cure? What happens then? Right. That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I know we've seen some uptick in activity post-bankruptcy, post-notice of final cure with some attorneys here in the state from an adversarial standpoint. Yeah, and it's interesting because we don't have, and and I'm sure you practice in a lot of different jurisdictions, we don't have uniformity within the, the different districts in Alabama alone. And so for servicers, I mean, it's got to be such a unique challenge to not only keep up with what the black letter of the law is, but then in all of these multi-district states in the 50 states that we have, plus the territories, it's got to be daunting to try to keep up with that and get it right to avoid this post-discharge, post-notice of final cure litigation. Right. I'll tell you what, here's, here's another scenario where I, I am seeing this actually come up now is the fact that the servicer or the lender or the actual owner of the loan sold the loan to somebody else during the final year of the bankruptcy. That new owner of the loan never filed any kind of transfer of claim, said, ah, it's near the bankruptcy. We're not going to file a transfer of claim. Well, guess what? They ne- they're not going to get that notice of final cure. And they're going to be deemed current. And uh, there's actually an appellate case in Pennsylvania State Court that came out last year, um, late last year, about dismissing a foreclosure. And that was the exact circumstance that uh, somebody had bought the loan, never filed a transfer of claims. So the notice of final cure went to the prior servicer who apparently didn't forward it on to the new one. And that loan was deemed current and uh, the foreclosure ended up being dismissed. So that lender lost a lot of money and had to credit a lot towards that account. Yeah, there's a lot of risk buried just in that rule. Kent, you know, over the the last three years or so, and a lot of this is driven by debtor's attorney, but one high volume debtor's firm basically filed an objection to every post-petition fee notice related to proof of claim fees and plan review fees and challenged whether those fees were appropriate given the language in the underlying contract and the mortgage. And I think there was even, and actually I know there was one form that was being used a lot in the region that the bankruptcy judges said, you know, the fees for this bankruptcy work isn't provided for in this contract and it's going to be disallowed altogether. Luckily, I think I was going to ask you about the PPFNs, too. When a PPFN post-petition fee notice gets filed to get a discharge, does the borrower ever have to pay that? That's a great question. I mean, what happens? Yeah. Is it going to be provided for in the plan? 
some judges will have set up a system where it is paid. Others are not. In some cases where it was enough and important enough, I amended the claim to add that. And very often this kind of coincides with the response to the notice of final cure. Very often I'll get to my response. And the only thing that's owed is the fees related to the PPFNs that have been filed throughout the case. How do you answer that notice of final cure? Are you saying, well, they're not current or are they current? I mean, what's the best practice for a servicer faced with that circumstance? Yeah, I'm saying disagree and I'm listing those fees and I'm actually kind of burying in that response. It's related to this PPFN and it, I haven't had to argue about it, but I think if if it's not objected to, then the fees should be allowed. Now we've got one judge in Alabama who doesn't like this at all. We haven't had to actually argue it yet, but she suggested that those fees may be waived. Now I don't think that's anywhere in the code. And I think I'd like to argue that at some point, but she doesn't like to see a response to a notice of final cure saying disagreed related to fees from four and a half years ago. I don't think that's the burden of the servicer. The debtor can amend the plan. Yeah, I mean, if they've not in that court, they don't have a process whereby they've provided for these PPFNs to be dealt with in the context of the payment of bankruptcy. Those two positions seem really incongruous to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to shift gears here for a minute. Steve, you brought up uh, a case that's before the U.S. Supreme Court, which sounded very interesting and could have some far-reaching effects as it relates to the tribal communities in the United States. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Certainly. It's something that should be on everyone's radar. It is the Coughlin case that has gone up before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, quick background of the facts on that, which were interesting. It's, it's literally, it's up to the U.S. Supreme Court over a loan in the amount of $1,100, $1,100 and all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was a uh, payday loan made by a lender on tribal land. Lender is owned by members of the tribe. So the loan gets made, borrower goes into default, Borrower files bankruptcy and the lender continues collection efforts, notwithstanding the fact that bankruptcy has been filed and there's an automatic stay in place and they continue to make collection efforts. It gets to the point where the debtor finally files a motion for sanctions for violating the automatic stay. And the key issue that's now going up before the court is an issue of sovereign immunity. You don't hear that one talked about a lot in the context of a bankruptcy court, but you do have under the bankruptcy code certain abrogation of of sovereign immunity, for instance, like a state or or the United States when they're filing proofs of claim in in bankruptcy, they're waiving sovereign immunity for purposes of being able to challenge those claims. So the question before the U.S. Supreme Court here is, you know, is a tribe as a sovereign nation can it be deemed to have waived its immunity? Uh, is it subject to sanctions for the automatic stay? I'd love to hear Brooks' take on this because there actually is some conflicting cases around the country on this issue that the Supreme Court's going to resolve. But think about it. If the U.S. Supreme Court says there's no abrogation of sovereign immunity, then there is no claim for violating the automatic stay, no sanction against the tribe. So what happens then with any, any lender based on tribal land? Does that mean the automatic stay doesn't apply to them? Yeah. What a huge wave that would create of potential litigation resulting from that. I'll be honest, I have probably 
have never looked at that section. And I did after I heard that case, I think it's section 106 that talks about sovereign immunity. But you're right that there is a split. I think some districts are saying that waiver of that sovereign immunity must be explicit. And if so, then how do they get around that? And I think the other side just says that it can be implied. So, and I've not read the case, but I mean, is it fact specific and does it differentiate as to whether or not it was a loan to a member of the tribe or a member of a tribe that lives on the sovereign nation's reservation versus a member of the tribe that's off the reservation or a non-member of the tribe? I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, my speculation is it's, it's non-tribal member off reservation is my guess, but I don't know. In my time doing debtor work, I did recognize that a lot of creditors, especially the online creditors, were were tribal lenders. And I'm not sure if that's because of some interest caps that they believe don't apply to them, but there are a lot of creditors who are tribal lenders. So I think the outcome could be huge. Also, I know that that's a core principle of Native American law, that sovereign immunity. So I'm really curious to see what the Supreme Court will say. Well, and, and I, I'm really curious to know whether or not this case has the potential to broaden the circumstances under which federal statute may be found to abrogate tribal sovereign immunity. And what are those potential consequences beyond the bankruptcy court in the myriad of areas of law that overlap? This sounds like a sleeper case that could have a, a huge effect on what we do as it relates to you know the tribal nations around us, but could potentially have serious impacts as to the tribes in other ways. And I didn't know the facts of how little the loan was. I wonder what about this case made them think this was the one to take up. Mm. Well, definitely, it is going to present some interesting challenges either way based upon this decision. That's right. That's right. It's something to be uh, be on the lookout for the next few months when the opinion comes out. And we'll do we'll do a follow up with Brooke when we get that opinion. We'll do yeah, absolutely. To, to analyze it. So, Steve, are you guys seeing an increase in filings in your jurisdictions? Yes, it is slowly creeping up. It is not near pre-pandemic levels, but they are creeping up now. We do see the uptick. You know, Pennsylvania, for instance, is a judicial state. And the most common event for people to file a Chapter 13 is right on the eve of a sheriff sale. Being that we're a judicial state, all the files that you've seen come in in the last few months aren't even close to sale yet. I expect a year from now when they're approaching sale, then you're really going to start to see the uptick of people filing bankruptcy on the eve of a sale. But it is increasing now, but not where it's going to be, I'll tell you that. Yeah, and I think that's nationwide. And and even in the non-judicial states, a huge motivating factor for debtors, especially in a Chapter 13, is to stop a foreclosure. They just may be on a shorter timeline. You know, I think we are all kind of holding our breath for the big wave of foreclosures that was coming the day the moratorium lifted, and that didn't happen. And I think that has an impact on why there hasn't been a huge wave of bankruptcies. But Steve, like you said, it's just kind of slow and steady increase. Um, I kind of looked at the stats. So there's a 17% year over year ending in March increase across the board on all bankruptcy filings. I expect that that'll just slowly increase and increase kind of like a snowball. Well, and I know pre-pandemic, I was sitting down with one of our local judges and we were at a very, very low point 
then. I mean, you had bankruptcy courts. I know in Alabama, running skeleton personnel and, and, you know, very, very thin because the filings were down. And I think part of what we're seeing, at least on our foreclosure side, is that even though, you know, it's post-pandemic, post-moratorium, there's still a myriad of loss mitigation options out there and there's still half money that's available. And so the majority of the files we're getting on the foreclosure side are closing for loss met immediately prior to sales anyway. And Alabama is a is a non-judicial state as is Mississippi and Tennessee where we practice. And you're typically dealing with the gavel rule. And so as opposed to immediately pre-sale like you have up there, you've got the race to the courthouse where you're trying to figure out the minute they filed versus the minute somebody was on the courthouse steps, Mm -hmm. literally a race. But yeah, I'm definitely seeing volumes pick up here. I also think there's an even greater increase in the new small business bankruptcy, which is good. I need to get more involved in that. I think there's a market for it, but I think small businesses are taking advantage of it. I do too. I told Brooke, although she's not one of our typical guests that's not already involved with us, we were going to flip the question on her, which is the, Miss Sanchez, if you had the opportunity to sit down with a 20-year-old version of yourself, what advice would you give that person? All right. So what I would probably say is to focus more on my studies so I could have the academic credentials to have full paid law school scholarships and not take out student loans. You know, I didn't come from a family with a lot of money, so I had to take out student loans. And I, you know, I think, and maybe this is just me trying to fool myself. I just don't think there was as many scholarships back then. You didn't hear about people getting full rides to undergrad and law school, but had I put in the work. I think I would have been able to do that. And to not have student loans, I think would have benefited me throughout 20s, 30s, and even today. Sound advice. Indeed. So are there any other uh, bankruptcy topics you guys want to hit on? Have you seen any any kind of motions? Do you guys do them down there for annulment of the stay? In other words, the sale occurred. uh, Sale occurred. Five minutes after the bankruptcy petition was filed, do you file any motions for retroactive relief from the state to, to validate the sale? No. I've never even heard of that. That sounds <laughs> in Alabama, my former boss would have called that a hocus pocus motion. Does somebody point at uh, code section or is that actually a hocus pocus motion? Oh, that's a 362 motion. And uh, I'll let you know after our trial on one of them on May 16th. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'd love to see that. Well, now, now I'm going to have to go pull the code out and get that look. So, yeah. Just say annul. You don't just lift the stay. You can annul it. And annul it means you can retroactively it. grant relief. I love it. Well, please let us know. I'm, I'll be dying to find out how that goes for you. I think this is a good place to stop because we're starting to creep into some of the things that I'm going to talk about on my bankruptcy panel at um, Spring Servicer Summit next week. So That's right. If you haven't registered yet for the Legal League Spring Servicer Summit, do so where you will see a dynamic bankruptcy panel being moderated by Ms. Sanchez. That's right. All right. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for uh, jumping in with us. I appreciate y'all inviting me. Steve, always a pleasure. We'll, uh, We'll be seeing you in Dallas. See you in a few days. That's right. 
If you like what you hear on our podcast and want to hear some more, please rate, review, and subscribe to What the M on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to visit with us on social media, we can be found at What the M Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.